We're going to do something a little different this morning. Um, I'm going to put the Lord's Prayer up on the screen. When Jesus' disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he answered in this manner. Oh, I'm supposed to do that, aren't I? The words may be different than what you've memorized. I just want us all, I don't care if you bow, close your eyes, whatever, eyes wide open. Let's pray this prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Before I start to speak, I'd like to share a video. If any of you have been to me for counseling, you might find this hard to believe. But they actually do. I actually have had training. (laughs) So I'm going to share a video of really one of the greats in counseling. I learned so much from his video. If you've never been to counseling with me, maybe this will give you some idea of how a session goes. So please watch the video. Tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, Well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. I just, I start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No, no, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Yes, yes, that's it. All right, well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, if, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most, we find most people can, uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, you're there. Stop it! I'm sorry? Stop it! Stop it? Yes, S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. So, what are you saying? (laughs) You you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you, you, you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds, sounds frightening. Yes. Then stop it. I can't. I mean, it's been with me no, since no, no, childhood. No, no, no. 
Okay. So like Pastor Allen said, he asked me to share. So here it is. Let's start by asking, what's the point of all this? This building, church, music, the Bible, small groups, Sunday school. What's the point of working a job? What's the point of having a family, your hobbies? So I'm just going to lay it out. Accept Jesus as your Savior. Start there. If you have accepted Christ, start with the Ten Commandments. Don't lie, don't steal, don't covet. Actually, covet's a pretty good one. People don't give it enough credit. Study Jesus, parables, Beatitudes, Paul, stuff like that. Paul's got some really good stuff. Don't be anxious for anything, transform minds, all that. Once you learn that stuff and you see where you're doing things you shouldn't, it's simple. When you know it's something you shouldn't do, which you will know because God says, thou shalt not, do not, like in the commandments. And we did pray. You all prayed. You're complicit in this. You prayed, thy will be done. And that kind of is his will. Here's the main point of today's message. Like Pastor Allen sometimes says, if you hear nothing else I say today, hear this. Most people don't need to write this down. It's just two words. But when you know you're doing wrong, stop it. It's not Yiddish, folks. It's amazing how many times God says this and still people act like they don't understand. Okay, that's the sermon. I'm done. Stop it. Charlie, (laughs) that's not what I meant. Like, I want you to speak. Like, I built you up like this. Yeah, I appreciate that. And that's all you've got is just stop it. Can you unpack that a little more? Like, we've got, they came here for a sermon, and I'm not ready. I mean, I could, but you have it. So do you mind unpack that a little more, please? Okay. You were expecting more. Yes, for sure. I just want to, as long as you guys don't have something better to do, something more important, someplace you got to be, maybe you're itching to get to lunch. Um, I guess we could unpack this a little more, but remember, you asked for it. (laughs) To start, I'd like to try to clarify a common misunderstanding, even amongst Christians. And that has to do with the difference between A law, a law, and a commandment. And not understanding this causes a lot of confusion. First, we all know there are physical laws. We could use gravity as an example. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It doesn't matter whether you like it. It's going to be dealt with. So imagine little Billy and his dad are taking a walk. Billy sees an eagle soaring off in the distance and he thinks, that looks really cool. I like that. I want to do that. So he walks to the edge of a cliff. He feels the wind in his face. He's loving it. His father, who loves him, sees what's happening. He sees the danger. And he gives commands. Stop. Don't ever get that close to the edge. Now, some kids might resent the commands. But we know that Billy's father loves him and is just trying to protect him from a law. The law of gravity. Billy doesn't understand gravity. He can't. But if he obeys the command, he's saved from a terrible fall. There are also spiritual laws. 
we could use do not steal, do not covet as examples. The reason God gave us commandments is that just like Billy doesn't understand gravity, we don't, we can't understand some underlying spiritual law. It doesn't matter whether you like it or not, whether you like gravity or you like the spiritual laws. The spiritual law will be dealt with. You and I go through life and we see something. It looks exciting. We feel the wind in our face like Billy. We want to do it. Just like Billy, just like a child. And our father who loves us sees what's happening. He sees the danger and he gives a couple of commands. He says, do not steal, do not covet. In other words, don't ever covet. Don't ever get that close to the edge. The command is there to protect us from the consequences of violating a law. A lot of people, even Christian people, seem to resent the commands. But when we know that the Father loves us and is trying to protect us from a spiritual law we don't understand, we want to obey the commandment and we're safe. A really good study on this is Psalm 119. If you've never read it, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. And the psalmist understood what we're talking about, and so he loved the law, as we should. Just a a couple examples, a couple of verses, he says, I rejoice in following your statutes, as one rejoices in great riches. If somebody gave you $10 million, God's law, we should rejoice in just as much as that. Your statutes are my delight, they are my counselors. When we started, we prayed to God, God the Father, the creator of the universe. Your, we may have said thy, however you learned it, but we said to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus tells me, I've got a ring up here that's a little. Jesus tells us that we are to pray for God's kingdom. We're to pray for his will. We all prayed this. And we do know that he commands things that are according to his will. So if we're sincerely praying for God's will, we should be doing everything we can. We should be working for his will. Everything we do should reflect what we know of God's will. Otherwise, why would we pray that prayer? Why would we ever pray that prayer? Wouldn't even make sense. So, this morning, we should be able to just look around in here. We should think about our past week, each one of us, and be content that all of our thoughts and all of our actions reflected God's will. We certainly should be able to look each other in the eye and know and assume that everything we saw in each other was simply his will being done. That should be especially true of our families, our children, our spouse. Wow, it's really quiet. (laughs) So we'll just leave that sit there for a bit. As many as you know, I was raised on a farm a few miles from here. I've planted many home gardens since I left the farm. And I suspect that we all know And have some notion, whether you've ever planted a garden or not, what is involved in farming and gardening. Old Testament culture. Through the time of Christ, 
was very connected to the land. So there are a lot of stories and parables in the Bible that use pictures of planting seed, the shepherd, the sheep and the goats, the harvest. Most of us know the 23rd Psalm, which starts, the Lord is my shepherd. All this makes it fairly easy to see the analogies and parallels that exist between farming and the life of the believer. So we're going to use that picture of the field, the garden, the flock as a metaphor for our lives as believers. It's my life. It's your life. And each of us really has one life and one harvest. Producing a crop, whether you're farming or gardening, is really a science. It is logical and it's practical and we have plenty of information out there, plenty of knowledge about how it works. And it really doesn't matter how we feel about too much rain or not enough rain. There are just facts involved. And there's another fact. No work, no crop. So suppose someone has a, a field. It's a, just a field. And we're going to say the soil is okay. So anyone who has planted a garden knows if you do some work, till the soil, mark out the rows, wait for the right time. It's all science. Follow the science. You can have a harvest, but it takes a lot of work. If someone has the piece of ground, they do nothing at all with it. Or suppose they do everything wrong and they don't have a harvest. Is it reasonable at harvest time to blame God if there's no produce? Of course not. So as we consider the comparison comparison between the garden and our lives, there are really two kinds of seed that can be planted. And I, I like this passage to look at that. Now the works of the flesh, that's the first kind, are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, always like that one tucked in there, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But there's another kind of seed. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So imagine with me the idea of a man who, he just loved fresh produce. He comes across a piece of land and he has access to a piece of land. So he got a tiller, he worked up the soil, he read, he studied, got a hold of everything he could get his hands on and had a pretty good idea how this is done. But life happens and when it was time to plant, he was a little tight for money. The only seed he had was a little packet of lettuce seed. So when we got ready to plant, that's all he really had because good seed was really going to cost more than he was willing to, willing to pay. He looked at the lettuce seed and said, they're so tiny, they almost look like dirt. There's no point in planting them, they're too small. So he cut a little corner and he just planted some old cigarette butts, some envy, and actually 
quite a bit of selfish ambition. And when he got the rose marked out and the seed covered up, the seed that he'd planted, he looked at it. Nice straight rose. He was satisfied. A little later, at just the right time, he had studied. He knew at just the right time, he put in a couple more rows, and he had saved some money for some seeds, so he was in really good shape, but I don't know. He had his eye on some new clothes that he really needed. I mean, he needed the clothes. He could have afforded the seed, but what's a great harvest if you aren't wearing the right outfit? So he planted some envy, some old beer cans, and a little bit of idolatry. After all, he only had one shot of this after You only live once, and God wants us to be happy, right? So why not put some drunkenness in there? He was really enjoying this planning business. At the last minute, when he was almost done, he decided, you know, there's a little empty patch over there. I think a little bit of lust would feel good. I mean, after all, what's it going to hurt? I'll put it in the back corner. Nobody will ever see it. Once everything was planted, he was golden. He just had to wait. He had just what he wanted in his patch, and it really did look good. There were some weeds starting to show, but they were still small. He could deal with them later. He could just ignore them for now. So time went on. He started seeing some tomatoes for sale at the little roadside stand along the road, and a friend talked about how great his BLTs were for dinner last night. And actually, if you've never heard the song, there is a song there's only two things that money can't buy, and that's true love and homegrown tomatoes. There, there is a song, and it, it used to be hard to find, but you can, you can search for it now. Anyway, so with his mouth watering, he heads out to the garden. He is going to reap the long-anticipated reward of his labors. And what did he find? Well, we all know he shouldn't have been surprised. It wasn't tomatoes. He couldn't even find the rose he'd planted. He got sweaty. He got bit up by bugs. He got scratched up by thorns. So many who claim the name of Christ face a spiritual harvest like this, and then they say, why is God doing this to me? He even was so upset, he took that little pack of lettuce seeds back to the store and demanded his money back. Because they didn't work. He had proof they didn't work. He had them. He'd never planted the seed. So he knew they didn't work. They just looked like dirt. Janice and I recently watched a couple videos about the church in Iraq. By the way, if you haven't heard this, the two fastest growing church movements in the world, where the greatest number of people are coming to Christ, are in Iraq and Afghanistan. One big distinction that was made in these videos is the difference between a convert and a disciple. One pastor said that converts are people who have prayed the prayer and accepted Jesus, but disciples are those who truly follow Christ. Disciples are serious. Converts fall away when it's hard. Disciples are willing to live and to die for the Lord. So this is a part of a dialogue. And they came to Jesus and they spoke to him saying, uh, excuse me, he spoke to them saying, I'm sorry, I've mixed up two things that are in my message. This is after the resurrection. 
And Jesus spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Jesus nowhere says, go and get them to say a prayer and make them a convert. He said, go and make disciples. Of course this starts in not minimizing the prayer, the prayer of salvation and repentance. But discipleship is the goal and disciples obey their master. Converts fall away when it's difficult. Disciples are willing to live and to die for the Lord. So let's imagine that God himself has a field to work with. A perfect, unspoiled, ideal spot for a garden. It was clean, pure, unblemished. There weren't any weeds or thorns. They didn't exist yet. So God himself planted a garden. He puts a couple people in it. It really was perfect. There was no physical sowing and planting for the people to do. Just follow the rule. One rule. What could go wrong? There was one piece of fruit. A little piece of fruit. And it looked good. And it's important to understand, the word on the street from accepted reliable sources was, it's not only good, it'll taste good, but it will open up their minds to a greater life experience. Everything's going to be better. And we're not talking about some big feast. We're not talking about a whole lifestyle or something. It was just one bite. One little seemingly insignificant indiscretion. Nobody was watching, because there really wasn't anybody. And it was just a one-time thing. What could have hurt? What could go wrong? And what we can pull from that story today is that right at the beginning, God established the simple fact that actions have consequences. And by the way, Adam and Eve, you and I, people, do not get to decide what those consequences are. Our choices affect not only us, they affect others. Which is really an understatement if we think about that statement in the context of Adam and Eve's little indiscretion. Oh yeah, it affected others. And they didn't get to choose the consequences any more than we do. There was a spiritual law behind the command to not eat that fruit. And breaking the command violated the law, and there were consequences. Well, what did I do there? (laughs) Okay, there you go. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. This is one of several places in the Bible that starts with a warning. Do not be deceived. And why would that be there? The implication is that we should really pay attention to this one. A warning is given because apparently... It is a situation, it is a reality where anyone might be deceived. We might be fooled. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Some translations say God cannot be mocked. Some say God is not mocked, God will not be mocked. The simple fact, God won't be mocked. They amplified, I like this, says God is not mocked. He will not allow himself to be ridiculed, 
nor treated with contempt, nor allow his precepts to be scornfully set aside. There were two basic kinds of seeds, and there's two basic kinds of outcomes. It is a fallen world, and we know that the thorns and the weeds will grow in the garden. Bad things happen. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. But if that's not enough, it simply fascinates me to no end the number of times good Christian people who start out planting the right seed don't tend the garden. They let the thorns grow. And actually, they keep sowing weeds instead of immediately dealing with them and rooting them out. Christian people plant garbage and then they expect a sweet harvest. Simple fact, we will reap what we sow. God will not be mocked. There is a law involved here. Again, like we said, we prayed the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How can someone know and pray that prayer and continue to plant trash? How could someone even look at that prayer and then willingly, willfully, with full awareness, so evil? The fruit of the flesh, we got a list if you want to look at it, into their lives. I'm not sure how some Christians think, but the God I read about in the Bible is not tolerating any nonsense in heaven. He seems to put up with a fair amount down here. But know this, he's not politically correct. He's not modern. He doesn't take an opinion poll and change his policies. He's not worried about getting reelected. He is, in fact, perfectly narrow-minded. And above all, he is love. And he's more concerned about the truth that saves people's souls than helping people feel good about their sin. So please look again at this verse as I read it. Because here's what I see this saying. Don't lie to yourself or let anybody tell you different. God, the eternal, holy, righteous, all-seeing, all-knowing God, absolutely will not ever, cannot be mocked. Anybody who does things for enjoyment without listening to and obeying God will, not maybe, but will reap destruction. But by knowing God's word, listening to the Holy Spirit and being obedient to Jesus, planting and nourishing good seed, we will experience a taste of eternity in this life as we await the final harvest to our eternal resting place with our Father. And so I kind of think this, God is either exalted and glorified or denounced and dishonored by the actions of his people. It may look for a while down here like he's being mocked and a lot in the world will laugh and joke, but that person will reap destruction, not an inconvenience. It says destruction. We will all stand before the same holy God that created that first garden. And if you've planted a nice looking garden, that's nice, that's really good. But I've lived long enough to say as honestly as I can, I'm not impressed. I've seen far too many that looked real nice for a while, but turned out to be full of trash and the flesh. Accepting Christ does make us a convert. It really is the planting of the right seed, which is absolutely essential. But that is only the beginning. 
of a lifelong journey of discipleship and obedience. So we have choices to make, and there are consequences. I like this quote. We, quote, we must all suffer from one of two pains, the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. The difference is discipline weighs ounces while regret weighs tons. And if you've ever grown a garden, you know it's a whole lot easier to get those weeds out while they're small and the soil is still soft. You wait until they're really in and deep-rooted in the rows. It's a lot of work. I just mentioned the word obedience. There's a word we should all love if we don't. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. This is in 1 John. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not even in him. Not even in that person. It doesn't say some of his commands, the commands we like, those that are convenient right now, a liar. That's really strong, John. I was just having a little fun. Surely he didn't mean, and if you found yourself filling in the blank there, I'll just let you work with that. Surely he didn't mean lettuce seeds. They're so small. No truth, none. Jesus said this, if you love me, keep my commandments. And it doesn't mean just keep your Bible in your hand. It means do them. This is a little passage which we've heard before if you've been here and pastors preached on it. But the hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So as you look at that, I would like to read this the way I see it. It's a little thing I put together, and I I call it the great commandment for the modern self-serving convert. You shall love the Lord your God with just enough to feel good about yourself, with as much spirituality as it takes to help you not feel too guilty, with whatever effort doesn't interfere with your priorities and pleasures, so that God will give you whatever you think best, but doesn't let your neighbor get ahead of you because you know you deserve what you want want more than he does. So I'd like to tell just a little story. Rich and Shorty were really good friends. And they spent a lot of time together. They did things for each other and all the time. Whenever you saw Shorty, Rich was right there with him. And if you had asked Shorty, he would have said, yeah, we do a lot for each other. In reality, the relationship was completely lopsided. 
The fact was that Rich had literally all the resources. Shorty brought nothing to the relationship and depended on Rich's generosity. One day, they're walking through town. Shorty was arguing some point about how life wasn't fair because he didn't, it didn't revolve around him and he didn't have everything he wanted in life, which, by the way, he sort of blamed Rich for because he could have given him those things. Shorty wasn't paying attention. He stepped into the street without looking. Rich saw what was happening. He saw a danger, but he reacted immediately and pushed Shorty out of the way and saved his life. Rich, however, was struck by a garbage truck and killed. The funeral service was awful. It turned out that Rich had helped a lot of people, and he had an incredible number of friends. His family was devastated. It was really terrible. At the end of the service, as the family was gathered around, Shorty, all of a sudden he came up shoving people out of the way, and he said, excuse me, excuse me, I, I'm, he's, he's really my best friend, and I'm a little short of cash, and I know Rich kept a $100 bill for mad money, and I need it. I need it right now. I'm just going to go through his pockets and take it. Then I'll, I'll go back and I'll cry some more with you. Can you imagine somebody doing that? How could someone be that callous? How do you feel about Shorty? I made that story up. Now I want to look at a different thought that starts out with a true story. And if you would like, I would encourage you even close your eyes and just imagine the scene and the scenario with me. Imagine that you are there. It is absolutely the worst day ever. Jesus has been crucified. There's blood, a lot of it. We know from the Gospels that some women are there, Mary, Jesus' mother, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, Joseph, Salome, many other women. There's Joseph, we know there's a lot of people. And so we really don't know who else is there. Imagine with me, though, it's a tight, but not a small group the horribly beaten, broken, disfigured body of our beloved Jesus is gently and with great care and love taken from the cross and laid on the filthy, stony ground. Everybody is openly weeping. They're exhausted. They haven't eaten and they don't care. It's dirty. The smells are nearly overwhelming. The flies are incessant and terrible. They all feel sick, headaches from crying, aches and pains from standing too long in one place, unable to even move, broken, and about to simply collapse. You're here with them. Time is standing still. There's literally nothing worse, nothing more helpless, nothing bigger, nothing more evil, nothing more important than what is happening right now. And you're there with them. As believers, we know that if we have confessed our sin, Jesus took it to the cross. So we know where we left our sins. You know where you left yours. I know where I left mine. What if someone comes up and starts pushing people out of the way? What if someone callously starts pushing these broken people out of the way and says, Hey, I believe too. He's my Savior. He paid the price for my sin on the cross. But you know, I know where I left my sin. I know it's on him. And I just want one more little peek. What could it hurt? God forgives anyway, right? 
What do we think of that person? Or better yet, are we that person? Will you shove through that crowd? Are you willing to push aside the family and true friends of Jesus and say, hey, he was my savior, but nobody's looking right now and he has my sin. I think he's lying on top of it. It's just a little something I enjoy. He's already dead anyway. You people just need to look the other way a minute so I can roll the body out of the way and pick up my sin again. No big deal, right? Besides, I can always bring it back when I'm done with it. He'll forgive me. So if I quote a verse, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A lot of people would say, amen. I know that's in the Bible. I sure don't want to be that guy. Well, I'd like to turn to a passage here and look at it. Hebrews 10, if you'd like to turn or just look at the screen, I'd like us all to kind of be thinking about what we can pull from this because there's just so much in this. This is a few sermons in itself right here. And I'm going to share my understanding of this section. And I encourage you to ask God to show you what you can glean from this that can help you. If we deliberately keep on sinning. That's the NIV, the New International. Some pass, some versions say if we sin willfully. The idea is we know, we know it's a sin, but we just do it anyway. After we have received the knowledge of the truth. Now at this point, one might argue, well, receiving the knowledge of the truth, that just means you heard about Christ and forgiveness. So if we're doing that after we receive that knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment, of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know that him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So who are these people who, who are in danger of falling into the hands of the living God? This is, this is strong language. And whatever they've done, according to my Bible, says they deserve a punishment more severe than death without mercy. This is as serious as it can get. So the first indication we hear, we see in here of who he's talking to is the writer of Hebrews says, we He doesn't say you, he doesn't say them, he says we. He includes himself amongst those who might be considered as the enemies of God. And I would, I don't know about you, but I feel like whoever wrote Hebrews, they were pretty, they were pretty on point. They kind of got it. In verse 26, we see it's those who have received the knowledge of the truth But when we go on further down and it says they will knowingly or willfully continue to sin, we could say, well, that's not that's not the save. That's that's just those people who don't know. But in verse 29, it says those who have been sanctified. It's God's people. 
verse 30. We're talking about God's people who are in danger of the wrath of God. As one who has received the knowledge of the truth, as one of his people, one who is sanctified, I read this as a very serious warning. Yet how many who call themselves Christians, who name Christ as their Savior, act as if the Christian life and obedience are some kind of game. There's some kind of thing you do when you want and ignore when you want. Not only is this as serious as it gets in this life, this is more serious than it gets in this life. And I, I trust this morning that the Holy Spirit is showing you what this is in your life. If not, I can only assume that the Holy Spirit isn't dealing with your heart. And if the Holy Spirit isn't dealing with you, I sure can't help you see this. But know this, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. In conclusion, I always wanted to say that because I love it when a preacher says in conclusion because you have no idea. I could be another hour and a half. But (laughs) I've been working from a basic assumption about each person listening to this message. Whether you're a serious disciple or you're a convert and you're not sure how serious you want to be or maybe you just think good people go to church and hey, who don't want to be good people? Maybe you're here this morning or maybe you're listening because you think your parents like to torture you. Whatever your situation is, we all would like life to be good. We would like life to be better. We want the weeds and the thorns to disappear. We want the road before us to be as trouble-free as possible. Young people, you might want to fall in love or you are in love and you want to be that old couple holding hands and smiling at each other. If you have a baby or a young child, you want to provide the best for them. Maybe you're well beyond that, and life has not quite played out the way you'd hoped. Not exactly what you signed up for. Maybe life is really good right now, and you're determined that it continue to be the best it can be. But anyway, my assumption is we want life to be good. Today's a good day to remove the rocks, Root out the weeds and the thorns and let the perfect seed of obedience and holiness take root. As we think about our sin and what it costs Jesus and what disobedience costs us, if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. I would like to say as lovingly but as clearly as I know how, stop it or it will be way worse than being buried alive in a box. Maybe you've been trying to root out some sin but haven't been able to. Well, if that's how you feel, you've not been able to do this, I have some really bad news for you. For anyone to really experience what we've envisioned, what we talk about, what we're created with this picture of a garden and a harvest here this morning, as evil as the world is, as broken and sinful as we all are, your dreams simply They're not reasonable. They're not realistic in this world. You can't do it. It would take a miracle. In fact, it would take a lot of miracles for most of us to get from where we started to an eternity with God. And let's be real. For most of us, our soil wasn't that good in the first place. It was full of rocks and thorn bushes at the beginning. Then, like that wasn't bad enough, 
we threw more trash in. Our soil has, has had poison dumped on it by others who wounded us deeply. And that's the bad news. This can't be done. It'd be easier to stuff the cam, a camel through the eye of a needle than for you to live a holy life and receive that harvest of blessings. Now for some good news. Actually, not some good news. Let's accept the fact we can't do this. This is the good news. It'll take a lot of miracles. But my God, the God of the Bible, does miracles all the time. The greatest miracle, the forgiveness of our sin, is free for the asking. We knew we couldn't do that. It was impossible. Why would we think we can do the rest of it without God's help? The harvest, his blessings, are, they, are just right there. If we can get our stubborn selves out of the way and cooperate through obedience in what he's doing. In Christ, we are forgiven. He knows what our soil needs. He wants to heal and nourish our souls. His seed is perfect, and he's already paid for it. But the condition of God's blessing is absolute surrender of all into his hands. With all that God has provided, the terrible, wonderful death of his son for our sins, for our forgiveness, his word, the Holy Spirit to guide us, the church, mercy and grace, Christian friends. We can live by and experience what we prayed at the beginning. Father, my Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven and the abundant harvest is guaranteed the Lord is my shepherd surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever